Welcome to the Grateful Historians Podcast, powered by McGinnis Dirt Services. I'm Lavelle, along with Chance, and we are educators with a passion for rural, local, and regional Southern history. We call ourselves the Grateful Historians because we are truly grateful and blessed. Uh, we are here this afternoon on the Monday of spring break here in Webster County Schools, and I told Chance when we came in uh, a little while ago that uh, he finally gets a few days off from teaching school, and I bring him up here in the afternoon to talk a little history. So uh, maybe it's going to be something we both enjoy. I know we always enjoy getting together. I always enjoy being with Chance, a friend, colleague, and confidant, and uh, enjoy spending a little time talking with him about some old things that uh, hopefully uh, people in the community can can sit around and listen to some stories and maybe have some ideas about some shared concepts and values and just have a good time listening and maybe hopefully learning something as we as we talk about some of these stories from the past. Chance, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me again. We are going to change things up just a little bit today because uh, we have today a, a mailbag segment that we want to get into here just a little bit later. Uh, but before we do that, we would like to spend some time talking about a book review. We have not done one of these yet. Uh, we thought it might be something a little bit interesting and a bit different to talk about a book. And um, had a book that, that I had read and Chance's read uh, that I thought was very interesting. Now, a little bit unique because this is not would fall under the umbrella of really Southern history as much as it would Western history. Uh, a bit of a unique topic. Uh, the book is entitled The Captured, uh, written by a gentleman by the name of Scott Zesch, published by St. Martin Press in the year 2004. Uh, and before we get into the specifics of the book, I'd like to take just a second and, and read just a, a short blurb about, about the book itself. On New Year's Day in 1870, 10-year-old Adolph Korn was kidnapped by an Apache raiding party. Traded to Comanches, he thrived in the rough, nomadic existence, quickly becoming one of the tribe's fiercest warriors. Forcibly returned to his parents after three years, Corn never adjusted to life in white society. He spent his last years in a cave, all but forgotten by his family. That is, until Scott Zesch stumbled over his own great-great-great-uncle's grave. Determined to understand how such a good boy could have been Indianized so completely, Zesh travels across the West, digging through archives, speaking with Comanche elders, and tracking eight other child captives from the region with hauntingly similar experiences. With a historian's rigor and a novelist's eye, Zesh paints a vivid portrait of life on the Texas frontier, offering a rare account of captivity. And again, the title of this book is The Captured. The author is Scott Zesch, uh, published by St. Martin's Press in the year 2004. I read this book some years ago. Uh, it's stuck with me ever since just because it's such a unique topic. Children who have been taken on the plains in the 1800s by Indian tribes and their inability to readjust to white society and some of the things that happened to them during that journey in life. Such an interesting topic to me. But we're going to do things just a little bit different with this because uh, Chance is our English teacher. I'm the storyteller, and he's the English teacher. So 
Uh, he's shaking his head over there while we're doing this. I'm going to pass the mic off to him in just a minute and let him tell some of the things that stood out to him about the book. Um, and, and I'm going to have some, some comments to make after that. But uh, I would really, and I think the audience would too, uh, would like to get um, some insight from him about the book itself and maybe some of the, the main features of it and, and some of the more prominent things that stood out to him. Well, thank you for uh, recommending this book. I normally don't read nonfiction. Uh, I majored in history at Ole Miss, and and you know what this is like to be completely burnt out at some point, you know, four years just back to back, and that's that's really all you do. Uh, so I, I typically stick with fiction, but this novel or this this book rather uh, does a really really good job of exploring the topics that you mentioned in the synopsis, uh, which in and of itself is is a really good advertisement for the book. It, it draws you right in and wants you to, or makes you want to know more. Uh, but the captured explores and examines the stories of white settlers abducted by Plains Indians on the American frontier during the mid to late 1800s. And his search for information about his relative, Adolf Korn, is going to reveal a lot how common a practice raiding and kidnapping was for the Plains Indians and others who had similar fates to Korn. And I think this is important because so much of our outlook today is shaped based off of old Hollywood westerns as far as Indian raids and uh, the Western frontier, so many people, they, they automatically think to John Wayne and, and all uh, countless Western movies that we could reference here. Uh, but this book really breaks down the reality of those events. So in response, Zesh is going to compile these stories together in an attempt to shed light and understanding on a topic that is often viewed through a, sing, a singular perspective. So to begin with, uh, Zesh makes it clear that the settlers were in native territory. He's very upfront with that, uh, and that's another thing I really liked about this book. He he takes this sing, singular perspective that most of us, and viewpoint that most of us view history in, and kind of forces you to look into it in a different perspective and point of view. So despite many U.S. government treaties, threats, and compromises, uh, the native groups were continually searching for ways to reclaim what had been theirs. And a primary method of doing that was through these raids. So Zesh explains a handful of these raids in vivid and grisly detail. And some of these accounts are so horrific, I'm, I'm not going to mention them here. Um, you know which ones I'm referencing here, but Zesh leaves nothing to the imagination. He goes into great detail. He's very meticulous in painting um, and accurate a picture as possible. And his goal in doing so was not to portray the natives as savage or, or rabid beasts, but rather uh, to show just the, the grim reality of that time. Uh, and, and no doubt that many historians you know, in the past have uh, painted natives that way before. So he, he is very upfront about this, but he takes it uh, just in a matter-of-fact tone. Now, the focus is going to be to illustrate how natives handled war and sought revenge over, again, losing their land, and um, as well as providing improving their manhood. Again, this is something that they were doing. Raids were, were a part of their culture and way of life well before white settlers came into the region. They had been doing this amongst each other. So uh, that's another perspective that I think is very unique to the book and important for readers to understand. Now, while many were killed on these raids, Zesh is going to focus on those taken by the natives 
and uh, were incorporated into tribal life. In most of these cases, this occurred to children as they were easier to mold and influence. Uh, additionally, for those who were, uh, for whatever reason, returned to white society, most, like you mentioned earlier, are going to find it really difficult, uh, if not impossible, to fully ever reclaim their biological family and culture. Now, Zesh explains how each had grown to resent white society and what it had and was continuing to do to their native family. And I thought this was one of the most interesting parts of the book because when you read through the accounts that he tells of the raids, they're, they're horrendous. I mean, it's awful. What these children have to witness um, and, and see happen to their families. And then after they're acclimated into native society, there's no bitterness from them about these, this loss of their, their biological family. And I thought that was so fascinating. And to see just how completely, I guess is the word, that they were, they were put into native culture and society and native life. Um, but many had come to fully understand the horrific raids against them and their families and felt little to no resentment over them. Now, there was also a lot of explanation about horrendous crimes the United States government committed against these groups which further provided a different narrative than what so many are accustomed to hearing or understanding. Uh, And this book also helps bridge the understanding for why Plains Indians carried out these acts, as well as provide a deeper comparison of white and indigenous cultures. So, again, I I think the most important aspect of this book is just Zesh's desire to, again, tell both sides of the story as, as fully as possible. Uh, and to give that realistic picture that, again, so many people often are unaware of or just choose to overlook. You know, I, th- I think it's interesting um, as I read this, and you mentioned a couple of points there that really stood out to me, a couple of things that, that caught my eye years ago when I read the book and as I was going back through it here um, several weeks ago and, and thinking about some things. Uh, one of them was this concept of proving manhood, uh, that was such a part of Indian culture. And, and, you know, I've had an opportunity to study and read a bit about Choctaw and Chickasaw culture here. So, I, you know, I, I think about the same things that happened in their culture. Now, the Choctaws were not a warlike people. Nobody would define them as a warlike people. They were farmers. They were gatherers. Uh, they tended to be, um, if people were upright and decent to them, they tended to reciprocate. Uh, now, there was a great deal of enmity between the Choctaws and the Osage Indians, and they would travel long, long distances because there was this historic feud that happened between these two tribes. Um not so much with white settlers. Now, there were issues between the creeks in, in Alabama, as we know from some of the things that happened there, but not so much with the Choctaws and Chickasaws. But there are records of the Chickasaw Indians going up as far as Ohio looking for fights with other tribes, and it wasn't so much necessarily revenge as it was this is a – this is like a rite of passage for young warriors in that tribe 
to learn about adulthood. And if you had asked one about the morality of the act, they would have told you this is just the way our culture is. This is our society. And if you had asked them, well, why do you believe that way? Well, this is what we've been taught. So um, when you only look at it, and again, you made the point, but when you only look at it through one lens, certainly, yes, they were horrible events. But had you gotten into the heads of those people, you would have understood a slightly different perspective about the entire incident, which uh, he did, as you said, he did a very good job of bringing that out, I thought. The second thing that you have read about and I have read about in other works is the failure of the government at a number of different times, and unfortunately, (laughs) it seems to be more times than we can count uh, in a lot of instances, to really bring about the word that we're seeking here, which is justice. Um, And and I can speak to this particularly when it comes to uh, the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek, where the Choctaws were uh, basically sold their land to go to Oklahoma Territory. Um, And when this happens, the government allows whiskey sellers because they have a a several day event at uh, at, uh, dancing rabbit creek they allow whiskey sellers and they allow all these people to come in but guess who they don't allow to come in the christian element the missionaries those people who would have been looking out for the indians best interest they didn't allow them onto the grounds and they did that intentionally because they knew that had they been there that would have been something they could have used as a bargaining chip to get better potentially a a better deal in in this situation. So um, we see that repeatedly in a a lot of things that have happened. So it just sort of reiterates that point. He does, I think, a good job of um, really sort of making that point and reiterating points about certain things we've, we've learned about other Indian tribes. Significant quotes from this book, and you pointed out several of them, and I'm going to read one of them. Um, that you mentioned that were that were in the text. Uh, here's one of them. Uh, a senator to the natives about about whites. He says to the Indians, "If you oppose them, war must come. They are many, and you are few. You may kill some of them, but others will come and take their place." The idea of what we call manifest destiny. Uh, the idea that at some point in the future, everything from the East Coast to the West Coast was going to become the United States. Um, and we can talk about the morality of it and all those type things as much as we want to, but the harsh reality of it is it was going to happen. It was going to happen, and the methods by which it happened, just for that period of time, so unique and, and so difficult and you know, there's so many things there that make you just want to kind of want to kind of shake your head. Right, and I think that quote does a really good job of just really characterizing the hopelessness and the helplessness of their situation, the native situation. Um, and, and again, I think it also does a really good job of showing that these natives, you know, again, so many people look at, they're going to read when the, if, if our listeners decide to pick up this book and read it, they're, they're going to see these raids as awful, and, and they were. But there's several scenes, I, I guess towards the end of the book, when the U.S. government is going to raid into native tribal territory communities and, and the devastation that they leave behind in their wake is 
is horrendous, and that's also against women and children, uh, just like the native raids against white settlers. So it's tit for tat, I guess. Um, and then also this idea when you're talking about Manifest Destiny, uh, comparing white settlers raiding into the Native Americans' territory to begin with. Uh, so I think it's I think it's just packaged differently. Um, but it's interesting that when you when you get down to the bare bones, how similar uh, a lot of these aspects aspects are uh, between both groups. Now another quote I want to mention here from the book. Uh, I think does an, another really good job of just demonstrating how how much these children who had been taken by the natives had been fully uh, ingrained into native way of life. The strong affection they developed for their Native American families and friends somehow enabled them to look past the horror they'd witnessed in those first days and even find a way to justify it. I, I think this quote again shows it's one thing to overlook it and to kind of to try to get past it to mourn it to to get over it but to then turn around and take it a step further and justify it uh some of these white settlers the the children who were taken be able to say i completely understand why you you wiped out my family uh and and took me instead Uh, i think to me just from our personal perspective today I, i don't know how anybody could could justify that after seeing what what some of these these kids witnessed um but again this quote does a good job of of explaining that and again we are reviewing the book the captured by scott zesh it is published by saint martin's press in the year 2004 available at any number of retail outlets chance one of the things that struck me in the book again that, that stood out to me so much uh was how Okay, we're talking late 1800s, middle to late 1800s. How in the early 1900s, some of these same people were able to come together in different circumstances and and be all, I don't want to say the word friends, but you just wonder about how had they been brought together under different circumstances some 50 years earlier or or however much time has passed since then, it's like another world has opened up by that time. And, you know, the same thing happens. We see that pattern over and over with native culture and white settlers, how some years later, uh, it's it's just a totally different story. And, And so often in history, you have the people, connecting with the circumstances and the events and everything there's a flow to it you know there's these divergent streams of people and events coming together and it creates a flood and and that's what happened on these plains during the late 1800s there was a flood of of conflict and struggle and who is going to ultimately be the controllers of this land and which culture will win out and which culture will lose and it was not going to be settled until there was a winner and a loser. Such an interesting thing to me. I'd like to leave this review of the book with, with this thought. And, and, and chances, he won't say this because he's modest, but he reviews a lot of books. He, he reads a lot and he reviews a lot um, and leaves uh, reviews for those books. So I, I'm going to leave that sort of up to him as to, as to what he would say about this ultimately. But um, there is some horrific imagery there is some things like that in the book it probably is not something for young people uh but chance what would you say 
ultimately about the book The Captured by Scott Zesh. Is this a book that you would recommend uh, to people who maybe have listened to this podcast and, and, and are kind of at least somewhat interested in this topic? Would this be something you would recommend to the audience? Well, before I give my recommendation, I, I typically review books, like you mentioned, from on a scale of one to five stars. Uh, and if, if, if it's five stars, it means I loved it. And in addition to that, I would, I would read it again. Um, and to me, if a book can bring you back to make you want to reread it over and over again, that's a good book. Um, I, I'm going to rate this one at four stars because while I thought it was very informative, again, I'm more of a fiction person, so uh, keep that in mind as well. Uh, but it was very informative. I probably won't pick it up again to reread, but uh, again, this is not really one of those things where you would do that. If you are listening to this podcast, odds are you're going to enjoy this book. Um, you're out trying to gain historical knowledge, and this is exactly what that book provides. And again, if, if you enjoy old Hollywood Western movies and have any interest at all at trying to get a different perspective on uh, or, or a different frame of mind about what actually happened in the West, I think this is the book for you. So any anyone who's interested in learning more about that has, historical aspect, I, I highly would recommend this book. And with that being said, we'd like to pause for just a minute to mention our sponsors. Again, as always, McGinnis Sturt Services. You can contact Austin McGinnis at 662-552-7750 for all of your land improvement needs. Austin McGinnis has been a sponsor of the Grateful Historians podcast since the very beginning, and we are grateful for him. Uh, if you need a pond built, levee cleared off, bush hogging, maybe some stumps dug, access road or a lane, house pad, it's getting that time of year when it's drying up and that kind of work can be done. For any and all of your land improvement needs, you would do well to contact my friend and former student, Austin McGinnis, at McGinnis Dirt Services. Again, his number, 662 552 7750. I uh, would also like to mention another sponsor of our program. You can see Michael Cobb at Farm Bureau Insurance for all of your insurance needs. Michael can help you with those needs from coverage from your home and your autos to life insurance plans tailored to meet your individual needs. Michael can take care of all of that for you. Farm Bureau is a Mississippi company. Michael is a local agent committed to taking care of you. So go with the home team. Call Michael Cobb at Farm Bureau Insurance. His number is 662-258-7802. Again, Michael Cobb of Farm Bureau. You can contact him at 662-258-7802. Also, we would like to mention uh, a shout-out to a couple of students from East Webster who listen to our podcast. We're always grateful when people do, and sometimes we give a shout-out to those listeners who might be in our audience. Uh, Chance is going to list two of his students this time who listen to our podcast, and we're grateful for them. Well, this first one is one of my current students, Levi Elkins. I hope you're enjoying these these podcasts. I know you mention them in class every once in a while, and I really appreciate that. And then uh, a student from last year, Allie Murrah, uh, both of you, uh, I'm very proud of y'all, and you're always uh, every day seeking new knowledge and trying to learn something new like we all should. So uh, I, I just really appreciate y'all and just wanted to shout y'all out. Okay, and that leads us into a segment we're going to do for a while that, Chance, I'm really looking forward to. Uh, we Dylan Blakely mentioned this on social media back some time ago that he thought a mailbag segment would be very good. I'd like to give Dylan credit for the idea and 
And I thought to myself, yeah, it's a pretty good idea. We can let people who are uh, frequent listeners come up with some questions on their own, and, and maybe we can provide some insight into that. At least we hope we can. Uh, Chance is going to introduce the questions, and I am going to try to provide an answer as best I can. Uh, let's look at a few of those. I think it's important to mention, too, and, and I'm sure you'll go into this, but every one of these questions and probably any more that we'll get, I think our listeners probably know any one of these questions could probably be made into multiple podcasts. And, you know, we may explore these later on. So uh, for the time being, I'm sure you'll probably just answer these kind of broadly. Um, And if the time comes where we can delve into a little bit more detail, we'll do that in in future podcasts. But our first mailbag question of the day is from Austin Reed. And he wants to know the history of the Natchez Trace. So speaking of a question that you could do multiple podcasts over, um, but but just broadly kind of give us an overview of the history of the Natchez Trace. I, I'm interested in hearing this. Uh, I know I've heard you tell several very, very interesting stories involving the road uh, that, that gives life to this town in many ways and has in the past. So uh, tell us about the Natchez Trace. Austin did give us an open-ended question there, didn't he? I mean, that, that's a lot of a lot of miles to cover there in a short period of time, but I'll do the best that I can. And I also would like to say this. Uh, Austin mentioned to me the other day that one of our listeners, former teacher of mine, Miss Charlotte Ray, and Austin wanted me to mention her, and I'm very glad to do so, and I'm so thankful. Uh, she was certainly an influence on me over the years and has been, and uh, always willing to come back to the school and donate time to, to East Webster High School, so I appreciate her. Uh, the question was about the Natchez Trace, and I think, number one, you got to make a distinction between the original trace, which is a historic location, and B, the Natchez Trace Parkway, which is part of the U.S. park system, because there are two different roads. And, and, I, and I think sometimes that people may fail to understand that totally, that when you travel the Natchez Trace Parkway from uh, Natchez to Nashville now, as it almost covers that entire span, you're actually not on the historic road. Uh, you're crossing near the historic road at times. The original Natchez Trace, if we want to go back all the way to the time of the Indians, it's probably best not to consider the Natchez Trace as a road as much as it is a series of trails uh, beginning with chance animal trails. Uh, and, And I don't think people sometimes understand this point. Years ago, centuries ago, there were buffalo east of the Mississippi River. And Indian tribes hunted these animals along with a variety of others, and these animals created natural trails that made its way uh, across various land regions. And so, so you start with animal trails, then they become trails of the native tribes who lived here, and they sort of took a general southwest to northeast direction, and that takes you across the state of Mississippi in a variety of places. Now, why do I say this was more than one location? Well, picture a family from some years ago or maybe just an individual riding in a wagon a long time ago and think about that person traveling to, let's say, North Mississippi from South Mississippi. Well, depending upon what time of year that it was, 
that would determine the route that he went, even though he's going in generally the same direction. Uh, generally following ridges and hills and the upper highlands during wet seasons, but in dry times, maybe following shortcuts through places that you couldn't travel in wet weather. So in about the year 1803, the government sent the military to, quote, blaze a trail that we would call the Old Trace. And when I say blaze a trail, roughly cut out an opening that wagons could relatively travel over. By the way, here's, a, here's an old expression from years ago that people may not, you, you've heard, I, and I know everyone has the expression, I'm stumped. I don't know the answer to something. I'm stumped. And Chance knows the answer to this where it came from. It came from wagons getting hung on stumps as they traveled over old roads because the stumps weren't cut low enough to the ground and it hung the wagon up and therefore they were, they were caught. Uh, so that expression, I'm stumped when I don't know something, goes, goes back as far as those days. That route opens up about the year 1803. Well, what, what caused it to demise? What, what caused the end of the old trace? Certainly parts of it, if, if we wanted to look at Webster County, the old trace, you could say um, in Choctaw County near Fellowship uh, Church, uh, the old trace road there. Natchez Trace Road through Matheston is either on or very close to the original route, uh, certainly, and, and a variety of other places. Well, why did that road go away? It's a real simple answer. What used to happen is that years ago, people would float down the Mississippi River to places like port towns like Natchez and then ultimately New Orleans, sell their goods, unload that flat boat, sell it, get the money for their goods and what they were able to sell their boat for, and then start up land back toward their homes in places like Kentucky and a variety of other locations uh, on foot or on horseback by a horse, which naturally opened it up for crooks and thieves and a variety of people to steal the money that they had with them as they started on the way back. So a very difficult location, but a location that for a long time even though I say a long time, for a brief period of time, but a highly traveled route. Um, I can remember reading about Folsom Stand here uh, south of Matheston. Uh, they made mention that on some days there would be as many as 50 people that came through. And that's a tremendous number of people who are either walking or on foot. But again, what was the demise? Let me go back to that point. Steam engine. Steam engine. Fulton and his steam engine, which ultimately goes to these steam boats, there's no need to travel back upland when you can go upstream with a steam-powered engine. There's no need for it anymore. So what ultimately happens to the old Natchez Trace is the old Natchez Trace becomes a series of local roads. Um, if you were to go up Highway 15 past Cumberland, we believe that the old Trace is Highway 15 uh, for a, a portion of it. So and it makes sense being on that ridge line that you see you know, as you travel up that way. Uh, so, again, it becomes part of a series of local roads. Well, why a parkway then? What, what was the purpose of a parkway years later if the old road went away? And, and here's another thing. As you travel the Natchez Trace, uh, stop sometime and look at the historic markers. They'll say a mile off in this direction or – 
uh, half a mile through these woods or something like that, they're directing you to the idea this is not the exact location. Uh, so anyway, th- th- that's, that's the way that started. So again, why build the, the parkway? I can tell you that from the local people and um, uh, some, some work has been done on this by some historians at the Department of Archives and History, their real interest for a road was during an era when we didn't have a lot of paved north-south roads. They weren't worried about history so much as they were worried about commerce. We can get a road that's paved that will get us north and south in an era before interstates and before most of our U.S. highways were paved. So in the 1930s, some all those years later, by the 1930s, there's this effort by local people to build the Natchez Trace Parkway. And as everybody knows who has any knowledge about the building of that road, it takes forever for that thing to be completed and and to be technically true still still not technically treated uh, finished today up until this point in time but around the 1950s the government begins serious serious work on a paved highway now here's the irony of it by that point in time most of those highways that traveled north and south those old you know white banner highways u.s highways state highways had already been paved so there wasn't any use for it. Now, I am not suggesting that there was no use for the parkway, okay? Don't don't anybody misunderstand me. I'm glad it exists. Um, I love to travel it when I'm not in a hurry. But it doesn't have – it had more of a commercial interest in mind from the people who had the idea of building it than a historic interest. But uh, I think it probably was wise on the part of those people through the park system to say we're closing this to commercial traffic because it is a two-lane road and because we do want this to be more historic in nature. And honestly, by the time it came about, no need for it in terms of commerce. We we had other roads by that time. That's a really interesting question. Uh, And I hope that I answered it to some degree. A lot more to say about that, but thank you, Austin, for that question. That is very interesting, and I, I think I'm going to speak for several people that we're going to have to definitely look into several podcasts on breaking that down further. But uh, our second question comes from Stephanie Harpole Contreras, and uh, she asks, what kinds of businesses came and went on Scott Avenue in Matheson? Uh, and anybody who knows uh, anything about the history of Matheson knows Scott Avenue was a happening place. So uh, just kind of give us the, the rundown of some of those businesses. I catch myself, chances I'm doing these things, saying like I say to the students in the classroom sometime when they ask a question, I want to say, do you want the two-minute answer or do you want the 30-minute answer? So I'm going to try to keep this brief, I promise, because uh, this is a mailbag segment, not not a regular. So I'm, I'm going to try to keep this short. Uh, Scott Avenue in Matheson was built in the year 1905. Uh, it was originally six brick stores. On the east end of it was a bank. The west end of it was a combination drugstore and doctor's office that belonged to Dr. Stennis, who was a doctor in Matheson, cousin to Senator John C. Stennis, uh, a doctor in Matheson for almost 60 years. He spent his entire career here. That quickly followed by a group to the west of that. Then a middle portion was added in the 1920s. And by my count, I've tried to go back and look at the 
time when it was at its heyday, its highlight of time when it had the most businesses. I counted at least 15 brick storefronts that were connected. So 15 brick stores connected on Scott Avenue in Matheson, some of which were two-story. I told a little story um, uh, on a Facebook post the other day about one of those two-story buildings when people would come to town on Saturdays. Uh, Somebody would get on top of that two-story building as a way of enticing people to come to town, it seems crazy, but they would take a chicken and tie a $1 bill to the chicken's leg and throw the chicken off the top of the building, and whoever caught it got not only the chicken, but the $1 to spend on items in stores through town. Uh, that, that should be a festival. <laughs> yeah, that should be a festival, the Chicken Toss Festival. Maybe we shouldn't toss a chicken, but maybe maybe the idea of it, you know. I mean, that, that should be a town festival. At any rate, that, that idea has about been lost. But now, she asked the question, what did that consist of? Generally, they would be what we call today general stores. Uh, if, if I could explain it, these type stores, you walked into them, There's a pot-bellied stove sitting in the middle on the floor. There are peanuts and cracker barrels around them for people that could warm their feet up on the the pot-bellied stove. And you didn't shop. What you did was you came in with a list, you gave the list to the merchant, and you waited while that merchant filled your order. And there were benches outside. There were uh, men sitting around eating out of those... uh, cracker barrels and eating those peanuts and throwing the holes on the floor, canned foods, dry goods, household items. Uh, on the west end of that row of stores was a store called Clegg Brothers. They had they were cotton brokers. They had farm implements. They had seeds and clothing and basically anything that a small-town store could offer, they had it. Just what else in general? Well, the bank on the end, general stores, the doctor's office, the pharmacy, uh, an upscale men's clothing store and an upscale women's clothing store. At one particular time early on, a photography studio, which I would love to have seen photographs from that. Uh, a movie theater, which I don't think many people realize Matheson had a movie theater. Two separate ones at different times. Uh, a millinery, which was a women's hat making place. Uh, which women's hats were big. Women wore them all the time. That was a huge deal. A barber shop ran by Mr. John Cooper in Matheson for years. Uh, at least two cafes. So a, a, a variety of things. Now, certainly couldn't get the same number of things you got at Walmart on this trip to Matheson to these stores, but you could get a pretty wide variety of products, including some very nice clothing. It, it's interesting that, that Stephanie asked that question. Because the last business I remember going into up and down those row of stores was her mother's. Miss Carolyn had a, um, I I guess, a fabric store, um, sewing and that type of thing in one of those buildings for a period of time. And that's the last one of those that I, maybe there were one or two others that I just don't remember, but that's the last one that I remember being open. So that's Scott Avenue in Matheson and uh, depending upon the era, a ton of different places being in there at a, at a ton of different times. That is very interesting, and it's it's sad to hear all of that, and then to see how many businesses that we we've lost over the years. But um, that that is very interesting. Now, our our final question uh, for this segment is going to be from Dylan Blakely, 
and Camille Gordon, who had, both had the same question. Uh, who spearheaded the school consolidation idea or efforts that led to East Webster being formed from Matheson and Cumberland? And I think everybody in the area uh, should know this, and it's very interesting. And again, another podcast, at least in and of itself. Uh, but give us give us the broad overview of how Matheson and Cumberland combined combined to form uh, East Webster. The five minute answer, maybe, because uh, this is this is broad too. I think in order to understand it, you first have to go back to the 1920s. Because in the 1920s, there was a major school consolidation effort that did away with the old. I, Chance will remember very clearly, I think the first podcast we did, we talked about the one-room schoolhouses. And we also mentioned the, the, the school consolidation effort. So we're trying to do away with these local one-room schools and... The impetus for that was a better roads program, along with the ability to get school buses, allowed the consolidation efforts. So uh, the state began to carve out school districts. Cumberland gets a school district. Matheston gets a school district. But if you look back at that era, for instance, Cumberland's district, it was from the northern edge of the county and this is not in the 1920s, okay? This is a little bit later. But Cumberland's district was from the northern edge of the county down to, say, Holland's Crossing. That was the cutoff point. Matheson's district began at Holland's Crossing, and that would seem to be, well, that's not much room in Webster County. Well, it wasn't because a lot of their district dipped way down into Choctaw County and went as far down as almost reform and then went westward across to places like Tiki Bend. So it was a large district. Both of them had a pretty wide district. It's just that Matheson's district was largely, in terms of the geography, in Choctaw County. So Matheson had this broad district. Now, another thing you got to understand, before we talk about how Matheson and Cumberland come together, got to understand that up until about 1960, I think the late 50s, 58, maybe 59, if my time line is correct, all of these local schools operated with a local school board, not a county school board. So, for instance, Matheson, um, Leon Wilson, in his first tenure as principal at Matheson, was not only principal, he was superintendent. And the school board consisted of local merchants here in Matheson who consisted of a school board. So he handled all the budgeting. He handled the curriculum. He handled the discipline, the board meetings. All of it was done right here in Matheson. And the same thing was done at Cumberland and the same thing was done at Eupora. So you had separate school districts. Then they made a consolidation effort on the board so that there would be a countywide superintendent and a countywide board of education so that all of them would fall under the same umbrella. And that happened again, I think, in, in 60 or 61, so that when Dr. – let's take Dr. Perkins for – or Dr. Wilson, excuse me, for, for example. The second time he comes back to Matheson, he is no longer superintendent. He's principal. Now – this is where you start getting into a problem because the money now goes to the county. And what you have to do is you have to collect that money per individual student. The county gets money per student. Well, when Webster County collected their money, they got more per student than Choctaw County did. 
Well, you got a problem because when the Webster County schooled those students from Choctaw County, they wanted the same rate of money as they got for Webster County students. And Choctaw County said, whoa, wait a minute. We're only sending you as much as we send to Ackerman for the Ackerman students. So that was a point of contention for a number of years. But then the biggest thing happened, and that is that the United States Supreme Court eventually makes a ruling, and that ruling said that students could not cross county lines to go to school. Well, Matheston had carved out a school district that was somewhat in Webster, but also largely in Choctaw County, and that was going to be about 45% of their student body that was suddenly taken away. And Matheston, being as close as it is to Choctaw County and part of the municipality, being in Choctaw County, you literally had students. I rode, I lived in Choctaw County, and I rode a bus that left Matheston and went down to Choctaw. We let students off in Choctaw County who could stand in their front yards and see the school from their front yards, but they had to go to school then at Ackerman because the Supreme Court had ruled you could not cross county lines. Well, when that happened, the writing was on the wall for for that school. I mean, it, it wasn't going to last anymore. There was another consolidation effort. To say that Matheston and Cumberland wanted to come together, they didn't want to come together. But what they saw and some of the leaders from both those communities realized, look, both of us are going to lose our schools. We might better come together and see if we can't make an effort to join together or we're going to lose the whole thing. And, of course, contentious issues over where do you put the high school, where does the elementary go, and they had, to, they had to hash all that out, and that's a subject for another day. But bottom line is the two schools didn't want to join. And I can tell you from experience as a student, when we first formed a school, the very first day of school I remember vividly, and I walked on that campus, and the Matheson people are standing on one side and the Cumberland people are standing on the other, and we didn't speak to each other. But I will tell you, after about nine weeks, it was just like we had gone to school with each other. I mentioned that with, a, with Buddy Pepper during the interview that we did some time back. The most remarkable thing about it is the lack of remarkable things that happen, the lack of fights, the lack of arguments, and those type things. It seemed to go remarkably well. But that's kind of why the schools had to combine. Uh, the, the drawing of the districts and then the Supreme Court ruling, that's, that's just sort of the way that that took place chance that we'll kind of wrap it up at this point and maybe talk about some more of those mailbag questions we've got a lot of those from the community and i like them i think that's an interesting interesting segment uh we're the grateful historians and before we leave we always would like to mention something that we are grateful for i'd like to give the microphone to chance and let him start first and then i will follow up well i can't remember if i've mentioned this before if i haven't I, i'm ashamed that i haven't but I do want to say that I'm, I'm very thankful and grateful for your efforts uh, to preserve and share history, particularly at the local level. I don't think people appreciate you enough for, for all the work that you do. And um, it, it takes so much effort and time to put stuff together people don't understand. Uh, but I'm incredibly thankful for that and all the work that you do for, for the town and for the school. Uh, and in addition to that, I'm very, very grateful for all those who are eager, eager to hear what you have to say and to keep that history alive and keep it going. That That's just as important because without 
those people who want to learn about it, um, we, we have no one to talk to and, and to teach. So I, I'm very, very grateful for our listeners as well. Well, thank you for that. Um, I, Stephanie's question about Scott Avenue and Matheson, the stores up and down them, I really didn't think of something specific until I went over that in my mind. I am grateful for the local merchant, the person who opens the store, the person who sponsors the ball team, the person who greets you when you go in the store and ask about your family. Uh, I, I can remember years ago when I had when my dad passed away and, and the outpouring of people in the community from merchants who came to our house and brought food plates and told us things. There are conveniences with corporate stores and those type things, but that's not going to happen. And they're also not going to be the people who sponsor your ball teams um, and, and take care of your community. So I, I try to shop locally when I can, and I try to support those people. I'm very grateful for those people. They are an integral part of our community. I welcome them in our community, and I, I just hope that uh, as we come out of some of these restrictions that we have maybe down the road that uh, that, that they're all going to be back. I, I, I say that uh as a wishful thought into the future. But, yes, I am very grateful for our local merchants. Uh, Chance, I think we're going to wrap it up with that note. We are the Grateful Historians. Thank you for joining us.